Good morning, everyone. It's a, uh, it's a privilege and an honor to be here this morning to talk to you about the compassion for the lost. And of course, we're talking about lost souls, those who do not know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And uh, Paul put it very succinctly here in 1 Corinthians 2, too. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the most important question of our lives as human beings on this planet. What are we going to do with Jesus Christ in our lives? Are we going to accept him as our Lord and Savior, or are we going to reject him? Because the answer to that question has eternal consequences. Are we going to heaven, or are we going to hell? Let's bow in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to learn from your word. May it May we hear your word. May it penetrate our hearts. For those who believe that it edifies our hearts, for those who are still seeking, may it penetrate their hearts and convict them. May the Holy Spirit convict them of your words. Because without hearing the word, they don't know. So, Lord, as we learn how to reach out to the lost, teach us to do it the way Jesus did it, the way Scripture teaches In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what I'm going to do this morning is go just through a couple verses that talk about compassion. But what I want to talk about is uh, the proper way to reach out to the lost. Uh, And as I go through here, this will become evident that a lot of gospel preaching isn't the whole gospel. And if you don't preach the whole gospel, you end up with false converts, people thinking they're Uh, save, but they're not. So we'll go through the scripture and learn how the scripture teaches us to reach out to the lost. Then we'll go through some tools to equip you in how to do that. And then we'll wrap up. In Isaiah 56, 7, Isaiah says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man, his thoughts, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon so as we know, our Lord is compassion, uh, compassionate. And of course, the most compassionate thing he ever did, of course, is the most compassionate thing ever done was him uh, dying for our sins on our behalf uh, on the cross. James 5.11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So now, what about believers? Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Colossians 3.12. And then I put this quote in your bulletin. This is a, a great quote from Charles Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers back in the 1800s. He says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. And that's our duty as Christians, is to pray and warn everyone about the hell to come. Going back and expanding on uh, Paul's verse there at the opening, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, 
to just gives us some, I think, some uh, comfort in knowing that this isn't easy to reach out to our friends, relatives, fellow employees that are lost ones. What are the right words to say? And that makes it a challenge for all of us. So listen to what Paul said to the Corinthians. And that I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness, in fear, and much trembling. In my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and the power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So a couple of things here Paul's telling us. He trembled. He was nervous. He was scared when he reached out, but he depended on God and God's word to reach out to the lost. And every time we want to witness to someone, say a prayer first. Ask for God for, for, uh, for strength and wisdom to say the right things. And Philippians 4.13 reminds us of this. I can do all things through him who strengthened me. Jesus Christ can strengthen us through all things. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there's false converts and, and true converts. And want to make sure that you understand that, that when you sow the seed to plant the seed for someone, uh, that all the seed may not take root. And the, the parable of the sower is a very important parable. In Mark 4, 3, Jesus says, listen, behold. It's two double trumpets. Usually he says, behold, if it's something very important. But here he says, listen, behold, or hearken and behold. What I'm about to tell you is very, very important. And he went on to talk about the sower who went out to sow. If you drop down to Mark 4, 13, after he told the parable, the disciples came to him and asked him, well, what does this parable mean? And Jesus said, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all of the parables? Verse 13, I think, is one of the most important verses in the Bible. Because Jesus is saying, don't you know this parable? How then will you know all parables? In other words, the parable of the sower is the key to unlock all the rest of the parables. When you and I get a grip on this understanding that the parable of the sower is about true and false conversion, stony ground hearers, thorny ground hearers, good soil hearers, two false conversions, two, one genuine, then we begin to understand the other parables that were about true and false conversions, the wheat and the tares, the goat and the sheep, etc., In 1991, which was considered the first year of the decade of the Great Harvest, quote-unquote, a major denomination uh, church had 11, of 11,500 churches got 294,000 decisions for Christ, people that committed themselves to Christ. And if we didn't know any better, we'd say praise the Lord for their outreach and to get that many commitments for Christ. One year later, only 14,000 could be found in fellowship. They could not account for the other 280,000 decisions. 
This is the normal, modern, evangelical results. You know, 294,000 sounds like a lot, but when you divide it by 11,500 churches, you're talking about 30 per church. You may be, you know, two and a half people per month coming and giving their, their life to Christ. And, you know, a local church assembly like this, we would know, you know, who those people are, and then we would know. You know, one out of 30 didn't show up a year later. So it's easy for them to account for this. You know, when you look at the numbers as a whole, you think, well, how can they know all that? But when you look at it at the local level and then add up all the data. But if you compare the modern gospel message today with the gospel proclamation like Charles Spurgeon, John Wesley, Moody, George Whitfield, Martin Luther, and others that God has brought up through the ages, they used a principle that has entirely been forgotten by the modern evangelical methods. And that's what I want to talk to you a little bit about today. Psalm 19.7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. What is it the Bible says that's perfect and actually converts the soul? Why, Scripture makes it clear. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, reviving the soul, or restoring the soul, depending on which translation you're looking at. Now, to illustrate God's law, let's take a moment to look at civil law. Imagine if I said to you, I've got some good news for you. Someone just paid a $25,000 speeding fine on your behalf. And you look at them and say, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. I don't have a $25,000 speeding fine. I didn't break any law. It would sound, this good news would sound foolishness to you. And it would also be offensive to you because I'm implying that you have a fine, you've committed, you've broken a law when you don't think you have. But if I took the time to say, look, the law clocked you going 55 miles an hour through a zone that was clearly marked 15 miles an hour because there was a blind child's convention going on. There were 10 clear warning signs, 15 miles an hour. And the law was about to take its course with a $25,000 fine when somebody you don't even know paid the fine. Can you see that telling you precisely what you did wrong first makes the good news make sense? If I don't clearly bring instruction in understanding that you violated the law, then the good news will seem foolishness. It will seem offensive. It will, but once you understand that you've broken the law, then that good news becomes good news indeed. Now, in the same way, if I approach an impenitent sinner and say, Jesus Christ died for you, died for you on the cross for your sins... It will be foolishness and offensive to them. Foolishness because it won't make sense. The Bible says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians 1.18 And it's offensive because I'm insulting, I'm insinuating he's a sinner when he doesn't think he is. And as far as he's concerned, there are a lot more people far worse off than him. But if I take the time to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, it may make more sense. If I take the time to open up the divine law, the Ten Commandments, and show the sinner precisely what he's done wrong, 
that he has offended God by violating his law, and, when he be, and, and then when he becomes, as James said, convicted by the law as transgressors, James 2, 9, that, he's, that he, he's broken the law, the good news of the fine being paid will not be foolishness. It will not be offensive. It will be to the power of God for salvation, Romans 1, 16. Now, with those few thoughts in mind, let's turn to Romans 3, verse 19. We'll take a look at some of God's laws for humanity. Romans 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So one function of God's law is to stop the mouth. It stops people from justifying themselves. You broke the law, you can't defend yourself. It's clear that you've broken the law. Quit justifying yourself. There's plenty of people worse than me, people say. I'm not really a bad person, really, but you've broken God's law. Now, the law stops the mouth of justification and leaves the whole world, not just the Jews, but the whole world guilty before God. Moving on to verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That means we can't get there by keeping the law, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So God tells us what sin is. 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, or sin is breaking God's law. Romans 7, verse 7 goes on to say, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. In Galatians 3.24 we read, So then the law was our guardian unto Christ, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. God's God's law acts as a schoolmaster, a guardian, a tutor, to bring us to Jesus Christ. That, he might be just, that we might be justified through faith in his blood. The law doesn't help us. It just leaves us helpless. It doesn't justify us. It just leaves us guilty before the judgment bar of the holy God. And then the tragedy today of the modern evangelism is because around the 1900s, it forsook the law and didn't preach the law anymore in its capacity to convert the soul to drive sinners to Christ. So what did modern evangelism do to find another reason for sinners to respond to the gospel? And that issue that modern evangelism chose was to attract sinners was the issue of life enhancement. The gospel degenerated into Jesus Christ will give you peace, love, joy, fulfillment, and lasting happiness. Your better life now. Saints, instead of preaching that Jesus improves your life, we should be warning people that it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, Hebrews 9.27. And when a sinner understands the horrific consequences of breaking God's law, then he will flee to the Savior solely to escape the wrath to come. And if we were true and faithful witnesses, 
That's the way we will be preaching. That there is wrath to come. That God commands all people everywhere to repent. Acts 17.30. Why? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Acts 17.31. You see, the issue isn't one of happiness, but one of righteousness. It doesn't matter how happy a sinner is, or how much he's enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin, without the righteousness of Christ, he will perish on the day of wrath. In Proverbs 11.4 we read, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Peace and joy are legitimate fruits of salvation, but it's not legitimate to use them as draw cards for salvation. If we continue to do so, the sinners will respond with an impure motive lacking repentance. Now, if you and I put on the Lord Jesus Christ for the right motive to flee from the wrath to come, when tribulation strikes, when life gets bumpy, we won't get angry at God. We won't lose our joy and peace. Why should we? We didn't come to Jesus for a happy lifestyle. We came to flee from the wrath that's to come. And if anything, tribulation drives the true believer closer to the Savior. And sadly, we have literally multitudes of professing Christians who lose their joy and peace when life gets bumpy. Why? They're the product of the man-centered gospel. They came lacking repentance without which you can't be saved. With the modern-day gospel, people are not fleeing from the wrath is to come because we haven't told them about the wrath to come. There is this glaring omission today in the modern-day gospel message. People aren't broken in contrition because they didn't know what sin was. Remember Romans 7, verse 7, Paul said, I had not known sin but by the law. And it's really tragic today, you know, back in the 1960s, when the Supreme Court said we don't have to have the Ten Commandments everywhere anymore, modern society doesn't even know what the Ten Commandments are anymore. You walk up to a person on the street today and ask them even for one of the Ten Commandments, and they won't know what you're talking about. It's been forgotten by society. So how can a man repent if he doesn't even know what sin is? Any so-called repentance would be merely what we would call horizontal repentance. People are coming because they lied to men, they've stolen from men. But when David sinned against Bathsheba, he broke all Ten Commandments. When he coveted his, wife's, his neighbor's wife, lived a lie, stole his neighbor's wife, committed adultery, committed murder, dishonored his parents, and thus dishonored God, he didn't say, I've sinned against man. He said, against you and you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Psalm 51.4. When Joseph was tempted sexually, he said, how can I do this thing and sin against God? The prodigal son said, I have sinned against heaven. Paul preached repentance towards God. And the Bible says, godly sorrow works repentance. And when a man doesn't understand that his sin is primarily vertical, he'll merely come and exercise superficial horizontal repentance and fall away when tribulation, temptation, and persecution come. Biblical evangelism without exception, is law to the proud and grace to the humble. Never will you see Jesus giving gospel the good news to the, of the cross. 
the grace of our God to a proud, arrogant, self-righteous person. No. The law, he, with the law, he breaks the heart. And with grace, he heals the broken heart. Did I say that right? The good... He breaks the hard heart, and with the gospel, he heals the broken heart. I hope I said that right the first time. (laughs) Why? Because he always did the things that was pleasing to the Father. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 3.34, James 4.6, 1 Peter 5.5. God told us that three times. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart, is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Jesus told us what the gospel is for. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, Luke 4, 18, 19. So the gospel is for the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. People that are oppressed by the, the heavy burden of the law that the Jewish society had imposed on them. Those blind because they don't know the word. Those that are captivated in those false religious systems. And to the poor in spirit who are humble. In Luke 10.25, we see a certain lawyer who stood up and tempted Jesus. In fact, it starts out, the questioning was to test Jesus. He stood up and he said to Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what did Jesus do? He gave him law. Why? Because he was proud, arrogant, and self-righteous. Here we have a professing expert on God's law tempting the Son of God. And the spirit of his question was, and what do you think we have to do to have everlasting life? So Jesus gave him law, and Jesus asked him back, well, what do you think you have to do to earn eternal life? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to just himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? That's Luke 10, 27, 29. See, he didn't mind Jews as his neighbor, but he didn't like Samaritans. And he was trying to justify himself that he didn't have to consider Samaritans as his neighbor that he had to love. And so Jesus went on and told the story of the good Samaritan to prove to him that he was not good. Should I do something different here on the mic? In Luke 18... Verse 18, am I coming through now? Okay. In Luke 18, verse 18, the rich young ruler came to Jesus. He said, how can I have everlasting life? I mean, how would you react if someone came to you and said that? I think we'd all love to have someone come to say that. Hey, 
you know a lot about God and Jesus. What do you think I have to do to have everlasting life? And the modern gospel would say, oh, quickly, say this prayer before you change your mind. But what did Jesus do with this potential convert? He pointed him to the law. He gave him five horizontal commandments, commandments to do with his fellow men. And when he said, oh, I've kept these off from my youth, Jesus said, one thing you lack. And he used the essence of the first of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. He showed this man that his God was his money. And you cannot serve God and mammon. Law to the proud. Then we see in John 3, grace being given to the humble with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was the leader of the Jews. He was a teacher of Israel. Therefore, he was thoroughly versed in God's law. He was humble of heart because he came to Jesus, acknowledging the deity of the Son of God. We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Jesus gave the sincere seeker of truth who had a humble heart and a knowledge of sin by law the good news of the fine being paid for him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And it was not foolishness to Nicodemus, but the power of God to salvation. In 1 Timothy 1.8, why don't we turn there? I mean, it might be good to, to look at this as I go through this. 1 Timothy 1.8. In 1 Timothy 1.8, we read, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. God's law is good if it's used lawfully for the purpose for which it was designed. So what was it designed for? Well, the next verse tells us, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. That's Paul preaching to Timothy. Timothy was entrusted with this teaching, and now we have been entrusted with this teaching, what the law, purpose of the law is. Think of the woman who was caught in adultery in John 8, the violation of the seventh commandment. She found herself between a rock and a hard place. She had no avenue but to fling herself at the feet of the Son of God for mercy. And that is the function of God's law. Paul spoke of being held captive under the law. It condemns, but a lot of people today say, you can't condemn sinners. Saints, they are already condemned. John 3.18, whoever does not believe is condemned already. All what the law does is show himself in his true state. It's a spiritual mirror on how we look before God. Look at it like this. Your table needs dusting. You dust the table. In the morning, you draw back the curtains. In the morning, sunlight comes on that table. What do you see? Dust. What do you see in the air? More dust. Did the the light create the dust? 
No, it just merely exposed the dust. And when you take the time to draw back the curtains of the Holy of Holies and let the light of God's law shine upon the sinner's heart, all that happens is that he sees himself in truth, a spiritual mirror. How do I look in front of God? The commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light, Proverbs 6.23 That's why Paul said, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's why, in other words, the law showed the sin in its true light. So now we see the biblical teaching of evangelism. Law to the proud, grace to the humble. So how do we put this in practice? This is something that uh, we all learn together in the way of the master training that we taught I think a couple months ago now, and uh, I was greatly uh, encouraged by how many people showed up. So I know I'm preaching to the choir, and I know a lot of you couldn't make it, so we will be teaching it again, but we don't have it on the calendar yet. The fall calendar is pretty full, so I'm not exactly sure when we'll have it. But the way of the Master, the reason it's named the way of the Master is because it's the way Jesus did it. And uh, we'll have that. But So what we want to do in witnessing to fellow people is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Never, ever would you approach someone and say, Jesus loves you. Totally unbiblical. There's no support for it in Scripture. Neither would you go up to someone and say, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus Christ. Why? Because I don't want to awaken you from a deep sleep. If, if, I mean, if you're in a deep sleep, I wouldn't wake you up with a flashlight in your eyes. It's the same way when you uh, want to wake somebody up from their deep spiritual sleep. You want to wake them up gently. You want to turn up the dimmer very slowly. Start out in the natural realm. Why? Because the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the precedent for this in Scripture is John 4, for personal witness. You can see Jesus' example for the woman at the well. He started out in the natural realm. Give me a drink of water. And he swung to the spiritual realm, and he started talking about living water. And then he brought conviction using the seventh commandment, and he revealed himself as the Messiah. So when you meet someone, get to know them, maybe joke around a little bit, and then deliberately swing from the natural to the spiritual. Now, one, now one way to do that is the gospel tracts that the way of the master uh, provides. And on your way out, after the service today, make sure you get an envelope. A beaker will be in the back handing out these envelopes. And inside are some of those tracks. I'm encouraged to see that we're almost out of million-dollar bills. That's one of the easiest ways. This won't be in the track, but the, the million-dollar bills are on display back there if you want any. Everybody wants a million-dollar bill. And you give it to them and say, oh, that's a gospel track in the back. And then you see what their response is and see if they want to hear more about spiritual things. So you've, you've got to know the person, you develop, how's the weather, how's the sports? Oh, yeah, yeah, the Giants lost, whatever. And you say, hey, did you, did you get one of these? And they say, hey, gee, thanks. Hey, it's a gospel track in the back. Oh, thank you. And then you go on. If he says, yeah, you, you keep it, he probably doesn't want to hear anything about it. So that's a nice non-threatening way, if you will, to bring it up. There's other tracks here that will help edify you and build you up in strength. 
Uh, there's a new movie out that The Way of the Master just put out, uh, Living Waters, called The Atheist Delusion. Uh, it just came out a couple weeks ago, and this is the track that goes with that movie. Uh, you can buy that movie now from the website. It'll be free on YouTube in another couple of months. Uh, but it's a great, great way to uh, help educate atheists that they don't think they know, that they know everything that they think they know. And then there's another one called The Atheist Test, and you'll find that very interesting. Uh, then there's, there's one that science confirms the Bible. Biblical things that are in the Bible, uh, scientific things that are in the Bible, you know, the earth is not flat like they used to say about Christians. Uh, then there's uh, a, another one. You know, the modern gospel doesn't say examine yourself to see if you're in your f- faith. Once you've made the prayer, uh, you're saved. Never to examine yourself again. Well, Scripture doesn't tell us that, right? In uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves or do not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. So this is there for your edification. Uh, you know, we talked about the messianic prophecies in the Bible, that there's over 300 of them in the Old Testament talking about the first coming of Jesus Christ. We've handed those out at Easter time, 100 of them. Here, I just have 12 of them on here. I mean, when you meet somebody for the first time and you're describing yourself on the phone because you're going to meet them like at an airport, you're picking up somebody you don't know, how many things do you have to tell them to pick you out of a crowd? Well, I'll be standing at this location at this time, and I'll be wearing this, I'll be bald, I'll have glasses, whatever it might be. And that's about it. Maybe five things you have to tell somebody to pick you out of a crowd. We've got over 300 prophecies that, about the coming Messiah, and it all points to Jesus Christ. He's the only person in the world that could fulfill all of those prophecies. So just these 12 is basically, who, is, who was his parents? He was born in Bethlehem. So where, and even when he would die in the year A.D. 30, that he would visit the temple before the temple was destroyed. So we know the Messiah had to come before the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. Also on here, I, I put on here the statistics from 200 flood legends. A lot of people say the, flo- the flood wasn't global. Well, there's legends in all the ancient cultures and modern cultures today. And I just listed in here statistics of what those uh, flood legends say, like, you know, 95% of them say the flood was global. Uh, 88% said there was a favored family. So there's some statistics like that. Another one, modern society says, well, Jesus didn't really exist. There's no history books that wrote about him. Uh, wrote about him. Well, they're not reading all their history books. So I listed 10 of them. Ten history books written within 150 years of Jesus dying that talk about Jesus Christ. And I listed the 12 things that you could get that come out of those 12 history books. That he lived during Tiberius Caesar. He lived a virtuous life. He was a wonder worker. He had a brother named James. He was acclaimed to be the Messiah. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified on the eve of the Jewish Passover. Darkness and an earthquake occurred when he died. His disciples believed he rose from the dead. His disciples were willing to die for their belief. Christianity spread rapidly as far as Rome. His disciples denied Roman gods and worshipped Jesus as God, exactly as the gospel tells us. And then there's two other tracks that you'll see here in a second that will become very important. Are you a good person? Focus on the word good. 
Are you good enough to get to heaven? And you'll, I think you'll really enjoy reading these, these tracks. So these are the ways that you can relate, swing from the natural to the spiritual by handing out a spiritual track. I mean a gospel track. So let's put those principles in action. After they have accepted a track, they could say, would you consider yourself to be a good person? I would probably say 99% of the people will say yes. Proverbs 16.2 tells us they will always almost say yes because all the ways of man are pure in his own eyes. Okay, well, do you mind if we put that to the test? And they're all going to say yes to that too because they, they think they're, they're good and they can pass any good test that you're going to give them. He says, do you think you've kept the Ten Commandments? And some people will say, pretty much, I try. Have you ever told a lie? And some people will say, well, yeah. And he says, well, what does that make you? And some people will say, a sinner. And because they, they know you're on the, on the, on the uh, biblical track, if you will. And so they, they think they're, they're responding appropriately to that question. And he says, but more specifically... And he says, well, I'm not a liar. And he says, well, how many lies do you have to tell to be considered a liar? Ten and a bell goes off. And he says, if I lie to you, what would you call me? A liar. And he says, so what are you if you've told a lie? And the person finally says, I'm a liar. Have you ever stolen anything? And some people will say, no. So I'm not sure I believe you. You just told me you're a liar. So, so have you ever stolen anything, no, no matter what its value, because it doesn't make a difference what its value, and it doesn't make any difference when, even when you were a little kid, did you ever steal anything? And most people will think back in, in time and say, oh, yes, I, I have stolen something. So what does that make you? It makes you a thief. Jesus said, if you've ever looked at a woman with lust, you have committed adultery in your heart. Have you ever done that? Yep, a lot of times. Then from your own admission, you are a lying, thieving, adulterer at heart. And you have to face God on Judgment Day. And we've only looked at three of the Ten Commandments. There's another seven canons pointed right at you. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Used it as a cuss word? And most people will say, of course. That is called blasphemy. And the Bible says on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Matthew twelve thirty six, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The Bible says if you hate someone, you are a murderer. Have you ever hated anyone? Yes. Now, the wonderful thing about God's law is that God has taken it to time to writ. Write it on our hearts. And we can use that to our advantage. Not just believer hearts, but all human beings. Romans 2.15 tells us, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience is also bears witness. Now, conscience means with knowledge. Con, with, science, knowledge. Conscience, with knowledge. So when... 
Someone lies, lusts, fornicates, blasphemes, commits adultery. He knows he's doing it. what he's doing is wrong. He's doing it with knowledge. His conscience bears witness that it's wrong. But we love the darkness more than the light, and people still do it. But they know it's wrong. God has given light to every man. The Holy Scripture convicts them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, which is the transgression of the law. Righteousness, that is based on the law. Judgment, which is by the law. His conscience accuses him. The work of the law is written on his heart, and the law condemns him. So, with this knowledge, if God were to judge you by the Ten Commandments, do you think you would be innocent or guilty? And the person will most likely say guilty if they're reasonable. So do you think you would go to heaven or hell? And they're going to probably say heaven, a product of the modern gospel. I say, why do you feel like that? It is because you think God is good and he will overlook your sins. And he might say, yeah, that's it. He'll overlook my sins. We'll try that in a court of law. You've committed rape, murder, drug pushing, various serious crimes. The judge says, you're guilty. All the evidence is here. Have you anything to say for yourself before I pass sentence? And you say, yes, judge. I like to say, I believe you're a good man. And you'll overlook my crimes. The judge would probably say, you're right about one thing. I am a good man. And because of my goodness, I'm going to see that you're punished. And the very thing that sinners think is going to save them on the day of judgment is that the goodness of God will be the very thing that will condemn them. Because if God is good, he must by nature punish Murderers, rapists, thieves, liars, fornicators, and blasphemers. No one is good except God alone. Luke eighteen nineteen. That's the first part of the parable of the rich young ruler when the wrong, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, "We uh, hey good teacher, why do you say that I am good? Only no one is good except God alone." God is going to punish sin wherever it is found. If they say they don't think God will do that, they are still trying to justify themselves. You can say you're right because your God does not exist and what you've done is made up of God in your own mind. You have created an idol in your mind, a violation of the second commandment, which is also a violation of the first commandment that you shall have no other gods before me. So now, with this information, do you think you would go to heaven or hell? And hopefully the person says hell at this point in time. Hopefully his heart's broken and contrite and now sees the magnitude of his sin. Does that concern you? And hopefully the person says yes. Now it's time to give him the good news. The gospel, the cross, the resurrection. Point him to repentance, faith, in truth. So with this knowledge, he's now able to understand. He now has the light that sin is primarily vertical. That he has sinned against heaven. That he has violated God's law and he has angered God and the wrath of God remains on him. He can now see that he is weighed in the balance of eternal justice found wanting. He now understands the need for a sacrifice. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Galatians 3.13. God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. We broke the law, 
He paid the fine. It is simple as that. The law no longer has a hold on us. The fine has been paid. And if a man will repent, if a woman will repent and put their faith in Jesus, God will remit their sins so that on the day of judgment, when that course case comes up, God can say, your case has been dismissed for lack of evidence. Christ redeemed us, as I said, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And therefore, exercise repentance towards God, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Put your hand to the plow. Don't look back. Be fit for the kingdom. And the word fit means the soil of the heart has been turned, that he might receive the inspired word that is to be saved from his soul, that he able to save his soul, James one twenty one. So that's only part of the story. We've told you about the wrath to come, told you about sin, breaking the law. But what is the wrath to come? That's another part that we need to look at. Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke sixteen nineteen. Look at the rich man and Lazarus, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. This is one that we went through in the uh, way of the master training. Luke sixteen nineteen. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. More even, the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades being in torment... He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime, You in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in a like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides, all this between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But when Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. A very prophetic last sentence there. They won't believe if even someone rises from the dead. To warn sinners of the fearful fate that awaits them is an act of sympathy and compassion. What would it be like if you saw a man, a blind man, walking towards the edge of a cliff? 
you would have to compassion and re- have compassion, reach out and warn the person of the leap to come as he walks off the edge of the cliff. The same thing, we have to warn sinners about hell and what hell is like, and they are about to fall off into the pit of hell if they don't repent. But in its zeal to find the pragmatic new methods, the modern church has often, too, has often abandoned this message. They don't use the word sin anymore in some of these churches. They don't use the word hell anymore in these churches. That message must include the bad news of what happens to those who reject the good news of the gospel. The tragic truth is that most people who end up in hell will be shocked to find themselves there. A recent survey showed that the majority of people who believe in heaven believe they will end up there. Such was the case of this rich man in this story. You could rename this parable, One Surprise to Be in Hell. Both to the rich man and the others, he would have seemed like a sure lock on heaven. The Jews believed that riches were a sure sign of God's blessing. Therefore, the more money a man had, greater his blessing from God. Why did the rich man all of a sudden become concerned for his brothers? He knew the reality of hell. To many, today, many people deny the reality of hell, and they will be surprised when they end up there. Our Lord Jesus Christ said more about hell than anyone else and solemnly affirmed its existence as a place of eternal conscience torment for most people. There's 23 separate scriptures in the gospel where Jesus talks about hell. I just want to go through a few of them so you get the idea of what Jesus said about hell or the wrath of God to come. Matthew seven fifteen nineteen. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. People that follow a false system are also condemned by the false teachers. And some of you may know that I had a cousin that followed Jim Jones all the way to South America and drank the Kool-Aid, a victim of following a false teacher and having false beliefs. Matthew eight twelve. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And when Jesus talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth, like the, the man in the parable... Consciously, they know they are in hell. And consciously, they know they were wrong. And consciously, they will regret it the rest of eternity. And, and they show up by weeping forever and gnashing their teeth forever in hell. And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Matthew ten twenty eight. Matthew thirteen forty, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and then they'll gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. Into that, into that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Luke 12, 4, 5. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who are after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Remember, these are all Jesus Christ's words in the gospel. Mark nine forty three. Well, I'm going to skip down to 47. And if your eyes cause you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to, than to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is not painting a pretty picture of a place to go. So if you summarized all 23 of the verses that where God talks about hell, you would come up with, Jesus has authority to cast into hell, into the outer darkness, where bad fruit, weeds, and branches that are not of the vine will be thrown into eternal fire and burned. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And we are to fear him who can destroy the both body and soul in hell. The purpose of this divine revelation of hell's horror is to warn sinners of its reality and the terrifying fate that awaits them there so as to motivate them to repent from their sins and embrace the salvation provided in Jesus Christ. The biblical revelation regarding hell should motivate us believers to defend the clear teaching of our Lord in the rest of Scripture. It should also infuse in us an urgency and a sense of evangelizing the lost. Neither a cavalier attitude toward the lost nor a compassionate compromise are appropriate for a subject of such great importance. Some final words of encouragement. As you witness, trust in the Lord. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Psalm 118, 8. Trust in the Lord with your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Proverbs 3, 5. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One. And the, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 9, 10. Hebrews, remember what Hebrews 4, 12 tells us. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. God knows what we think. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give an account. Uh, as I was reading that, it reminded me, you know, we sang Amazing Grace by John Newton. And, you know, when we may be planting a seed now, we may not see any results of that seed planted until years later, maybe. John Newton, he was out in the middle of the ocean rowing a boat, sobbing. He had, he had been a slave in Africa, and he was trying to escape. And he had been a terrible sinner, a sailor, you know, committed all kinds of sins that you hear stories about sailors. But as he was rowing that boat, God started talking to him in his heart. Words that he was taught as a child started penetrating his heart. The hymns that he learned as a child started penetrating his heart. So it's in God's timing. We don't control the timing. And God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Also, we are commanded to witness. 
Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are God's instruments making his appeal through us. We are to make the appeal for God to the fellow sinners. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 20, 21. Now, in just a second here, we're going to show you a, a two-minute video that uh, kind of brings all this teaching together and, and what we need to preach. But I want to close before the final prayer in these famous words of a famous theologian, General Douglas MacArthur, in World War II. You know, we're told that, you know, lost sinners are enemies of the cross. And, uh, of course, we're to love our enemies as our neighbors. And General Douglas MacArthur made this famous quote. The enemy is in front of us. The enemy is behind us. The enemy is to the right of us. The enemy is to the left of us. They can't get away this time. So, so remember that. we got sinners everywhere. Don't let them get away. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that your words today were not only heard, but penetrated our hearts. That for those who yet to believe, that it convicts them, and that today will be their salvation. And for those of us who believe that it edifies us and gives us the courage to reach out to the lost. I want to close with 1 Timothy, starting in verse 12. And it's a prayer that Paul preached. Make it our prayer. So wherever it says I, which is Paul, make it you as the I in this prayer. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed from me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners to whom I am foremost. But I have received his mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example of those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen.